Well, this morning we are going to begin a new series. We're going to be studying the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite books, and we're going to really study that book in depth. And so you can get a head start. You can begin to read the book of Philippians. And some people say, well, I have trouble, you know, memorizing scripture. One pastor solved that problem. He said, I challenge you to read the book of Philippians 50 times. He said, by the 50th time, you'll pretty much have it memorized. So uh, it's a great, great book to read over and over. And the more you read it, the more you will get out of it. And so this morning, the opening message, I've entitled it, When Christianity Really Works. When Christianity Really Works. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the rain. We certainly need that, Lord God. And, And so we so much appreciate that rain, and we thank you for it. I thank you for each and every person that is here because I believe that you drew them. I don't believe there are any coincidences. I don't believe there are any accidents. All things ultimately will work out for your glory. And I just ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head, that I truly would speak your words this morning as we begin the book of Philippians. It's a strong message right out of the shoot, right in the opening verse. And so often we miss the power of that opening verse. I pray that it will come forth this morning. And so I'm just thanking you now, Lord, what you're going to do. I ask that you would bless each and every single person here with a soft heart and with ears to hear what you have, Lord, your truth that sets free. And I just thank you for what will be accomplished now. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Commitment matters. Commitment matters more than most of us think. You see, without commitment, there will be no excellence. Without excellence, there will be no victory. And without victory, there will be no satisfaction. And you know, that is true, by the way, in the Christian life. The reason why so many people do not find Christianity satisfying, they do not find that Jesus works, is because Look no further than commitment, total, absolute commitment. In fact, it's very interesting, right out of the chute, notice how the Apostle Paul starts his letter to the Philippians. says this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, who was a disciple of Paul's. Now listen to this, slaves of Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting opening, don't you think? Normally, Paul would say, hi, this is Paul. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he would be trying to show you and I his authority and the reason why we ought to be reading the letter known as the letter to the Philippian church. That just makes sense. In fact, to be an apostle is a great, great privilege as well as a great, great responsibility. Paul could also say, hi, this is Paul. I am a Roman citizen. That would have worked because the Philippians were very proud of their ties to Rome. In fact, in 42 BC, Octavian and Mark Anthony won a great victory at Philippi for the Romans, and they became a Roman colony then. And so, like I said, the Philippians were extremely proud of those ties to Rome. In fact, if you know your Roman history or ancient history, Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus. So if Paul would have said, hi, I'm Paul, 
a Roman citizen. That would have really impressed them that he was a citizen of Rome. That was a great, great privilege. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't use either one of those titles. Instead, he says, this is Paul, a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago in Roman culture, a slave carried a negative connotation as it does today in America. 2,000 years ago, the Romans valued their freedom. It's interesting, 2,000 years later, we Americans, we value very much our freedom. A slave, on the other hand, in the Roman culture was an article of property. They had no rights and they had no legal status. In fact, the great Aristotle said this about a slave in ancient Rome. He said, a slave was nothing more than chattel owned by his master. So why in the world would Paul start his letter out by telling the Philippians that he is a slave of Jesus Christ? If you read the New Testament, it is interesting to note that a host of terms are used to describe the follower of Jesus Christ. For example, Christian, aliens, citizens of heaven, lights to the world. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are Jesus' body, friends around his table. We are called to compete like athletes. We are to fight like soldiers. We are Jesus' sheep and he is our shepherd. All of these metaphors describe the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ. But the metaphor, above all metaphors that describes the follower or believer of Jesus Christ is a Slave. Skip, can you put up that picture? You know, that is an odious picture to us here in America in 2016. But I want you to know this morning the reality is every single person is a slave. There's not a person alive right now on planet Earth who is not a slave. Jesus Christ said this in John chapter 8 and verse 34. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Jesus Christ is saying that the vast majority of 7 billion people who are living on planet Earth today, they are enslaved. They are a bondage in bondage to sin. Can I give you a rather vivid a rather graphic picture of how a person becomes enslaved to sin and what it does to you. Up in the Arctic Circle, there is a tribe of Eskimos who have learned how to set a very simple and effective trap for catching a wolf. First, what the Eskimo does is they take a knife with a long handle and they sharpen the blade of that knife so that it is razor sharp. Then they take that razor sharp blade, that knife, and they dip it into seal's blood. And after they dip it into the seal's blood, they put it outside and let that blood freeze on the knife's razor-sharp edge. And after it's frozen, he takes the knife again, brings it back in, and he dips it in the seal's blood. And then he allows that to freeze. And he allows layer after layer of blood to freeze on that knife's razor-sharp blade until he has what they call a blood popsicle. Then the Eskimo goes out into the wilderness, 
And he takes that knife and he buries the handle of that knife in the frozen snow, but he leaves the blood popsicle exposed. He then leaves and he waits. Night comes. The full moon's light brightens and illuminates the blood popsicle. A wolf smells the blood popsicle and he begins to lick. At first slowly. But as his bloodthirst increases, he begins to lick faster and faster and faster. He does not notice that his tongue now has become numb because of the cold. Soon the wolf's licking exposes part of that razor-sharp edge of the knife. And the wolf continues to lick, cutting his tongue again and again and again. He does not even notice now that the blood is freely flowing from his tongue, but rather the wolf is thrilled that he's getting more and more and more blood. The wolf soon grows weaker and weaker with each and every lick, unable to stop himself as his bloodlust simply overpowers him. The next morning, the Eskimo comes and he finds the wolf dead next to the knife and its razor sharp edge. I want you to understand this morning, sin is like that frozen blood right there on the razor sharp edge, the razor sharp part of that exposed knife. That is what sin is like. In fact, we are told this in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about Hebrews chapter 11 last week. I called it God's Hall of Fame of Faith. And the beauty about God's Hall of Fame of Faith, that I said last week, is each and every single one of us can make it. You may not make the football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, I said last week, but you certainly can make God's Hall of Fame of Faith. And, you know, we began to look at that last week, and I want to remind us about one person, Moses the Magnificent. We are told this again in Hebrews in chapter 11. By faith, when Mo- Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son, or the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, Moses refused to be a palace man. Instead, he chose to be mistreated along with God's people. Now watch this. Rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, make no mistake about it. Sin is pleasurable. Sin is very pleasurable. I mean, in fact, our flesh craves sin because we like it. In fact, you know, we take a lick of sin, right? And it feels good to our flesh. So we think, you know, if one looks good, two must be even better. And if two licks are good, then three licks would be even better. And if three licks are good, then four licks would be even better. And soon we find ourselves and we are in bondage. We are enslaved to that sin. And before we know it, our soul is slowly but surely being destroyed. And there's only one cure. There's only one power great enough to overcome the power of sin, the draw of it in each one of our lives. And you know what that answer is? You know who that is? It's Jesus. And some people finally like the prodigal son in Luke 16, they cry out, Jesus, help me. And they repent and they turn from their sin and they say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And they find forgiveness. They find a cleansing for their sin, and they find the power to overcome sin's allure. I know that to be true, by the way, because 
I experienced it in my life some 35 years ago. You know, there are some people here this morning. Do you realize that most of the people out there are slowly dying as their souls slowly but surely are dying because of sin. Sin is like a boa constrictor. You ever seen a boa constrictor? It just wraps itself around its victim. It slowly squeezes you. It squeezes the life out of you. Well, that is what sin does to a person. You know, almost every single person Almost every single person tragically on planet Earth, at least the vast majority, have tattooed either on their forehead or on the back of their hand, slave to sin. And you know what the great tragedy is? Most people, like that wolf, don't even realize that they are enslaved and that they are slowly dying because of sin and the grip that it has on their life. There is an interesting story found in what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll look at Mark's version of it. It starts out like this in Mark chapter 10. Skip, can you put it up, the verses? As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. Now imagine with me for a moment, someone comes running up to you and they say, I know that you're a good person. What must I do to gain heaven, to, you know, gain eternal life? What would you say to them? Well, this is where it's good to be part of a black church or Pentecostal church. They realize that participation, you know, is is part of the thing. So I'm going to give you a hint. The first letter of his name begins with J. (laughs) Jesus. Yes, we would say believe in Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You know, most of us would respond in one way or another like that. Actually, you know, one of my favorite responses comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was the prince of preachers back in England in the 1800s. His response was classic. Turn or burn. Kind of catchy, isn't it? Now, the obvious question is, why didn't Jesus just say, believe on me? Just believe on me. You know, perhaps Jesus was confused about the gospel. You know, maybe to use a football metaphor, he just kind of fumbled the question. I don't think so. You see, I don't believe that for a moment. I think this Jesus wanted this person to discover something about themselves. This person comes up to Jesus and they ask the question, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. You see, this rich person is tipping their hand. Let me explain. Let's say you and I, we were to go out to Del Mar this afternoon. And we were asked the Del Martians one question, just one question. Kind of like the Jesus soda pop quiz, all right? Just one question. Here's the question. If there is a heaven, notice I didn't say that there was. But if there is a heaven, how would you get there? What would 95% of the Delmartians respond? Be good. good. That's right. They would say, be good. You need to be a good, you need to be a nice person. Has someone ever said to you, are you telling me that my good granny is going to go to hell? You see, 
the vast majority of people around planet Earth, including the Pope, they believe that if you are good, that if you are a nice person, that if you do good things, that you will be going to heaven. In fact, that's exactly what this rich man believed himself. So Jesus decided to have a little fun with this guy. And he, Jesus asked the man, why do you call me good? You know, that's a very interesting question. Why is Jesus good? What makes a person good? Or what makes a person bad? Note, by the way, that Jesus answers the question with a question. It's a great evangelistic uh, you know, technique, by the way. Someone once asked a rabbi this, why do you always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi said, why shouldn't I answer a question with a question? <laughs> and you see, when we ask questions, it forces a person to reveal what is really inside of them. What are their assumptions? Now, in this case, though, Jesus actually answers his own question. He says this, no one is good but God alone. Now, that's an interesting conundrum. If you have to be good to get into heaven and only God is good, who is going to be in heaven? Beautiful. You guys are following right along. Only God is going to be in heaven. No one but God. In essence, Jesus is saying to this rich man, your application to join the Trinity has been rejected. You do not meet minimum entry requirements. Now let's try this logic. If Jesus is good and only God alone is good, then who is Jesus? That's right, God, you guys are following right along. You guys are smart. Now, this leads to this question. If only God alone is good and Jesus is God, therefore Jesus must be the good God. And if Jesus is the good God, then who and what are you and I? Not God and not good. Now, you know, apparently this person here, this rich man, he was a little slow. You know, simple logic seemed to escape him. So Jesus enrolls him into remedial theology 101. And we pick up the story again in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 19. But to answer your question, remember the question is what what this rich man is really asking. Am I good enough, Jesus, to have eternal life? Am I good enough? And Jesus says this. You know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. In other words, you can't be lying. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Can anyone say delusional? No, this, this man actually thinks that his application should be accepted to be part of the Trinity, and we have a quadrinity now. I love this guy. You know, and then Jesus says, you know, Jesus, look at verse 21. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Isn't that great? God loves idiots. This guy's an idiot. God loves him. That means there's hope for you and me, isn't there, right? Some of you are catching on to this thing. That's good. I like that. 
Jesus isn't finished with the guy, though. Then he says this. Listen to him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told them. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. You know what's interesting? Jesus set this guy up. Jesus set this guy up. You see, this guy thought he was a pretty good guy, so Jesus gives him the second half of the dialogue, uh, decalogue first. And, you know, he actually thought he was a pretty good guy because, you see, he looked at his wife, or maybe he looked at his neighbor who's a jerk. You see, we can all find somebody that we're better than. That's why we all think we're, you know, pretty good people. If you ask the average person, they'll say, of course I'm a good person. But that's comparatively speaking. Of course you're better than Adolf Hitler. I mean, anybody can win there, right? But see, Jesus set this guy up because then he gives him the first half of the Decalogue, the first half of the Ten Commandments. You know those? They're found in Exodus chapter 20. Skip, can you put those up for us? Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of image or anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. In other words, I want the best for you. I don't want you destroying your soul by worshiping something that can't give you life but put you in bondage. I will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations for those who reject me. You see, this man wasn't as good as he thought he was. You see, he was breaking the first half of the Decalogue. He worshiped idols. What was his idol? Ah, money, money. By the way, money is a powerful idol. Look, in fact, what Jesus says in verse 20. Now, this isn't me speaking, so don't, 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 you know, rock. Don't stone the messenger now. Here we go, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, by the way, the greatest narcotic, the greatest narcotic known to man, is money. In fact, he says in Mark, or Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, he says this, or yeah, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. You will delight in the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. Please note, Jesus did not say you cannot serve both God and sex or God in power, or God in success, or God in fame. But he says God in money. I'm not saying those other things can't be idols, but they're nothing in comparison to the power that money has. It enslaves the vast majority of the world. You may not have a lot of money, but that doesn't mean it's not your idol. Most people that I know of, that's why they're playing the lottery, they want to be a millionaire. They want to be rich, so they're still enslaved to money. And they're slowly dying. John D. Rockefeller, Skip, can you put up his picture? John D. Rockefeller probably is the richest man to ever live if you include inflation. And he was the founder of Standard Oil. And one day Rockefeller was asked by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, you are the richest man in the world. How much money is enough? And with a wry smile, Mr. Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. 
How sad for the rich man, Jesus says. You know why it's sad for the rich man, the rich man that Jesus was talking to? Do you know what the great tragedy is? That man lived in fear. That man lived in fear. You know why he lived in fear? Because he was always afraid that he was going to lose the money. A rich man, I, I, I grew up with a rich father. Let me tell you, there's tremendous fear. There is tremendous fear. By the way, what money provides for you is security. See, what this guy didn't want to do, this rich man, he didn't really want to trust in Jesus to give him security. He was going to trust in his wealth. And you know what the tragedy is? is he had God right in front of him. He had Jesus right in front of him. And Jesus could have said, I could set you free from your fear. I could set you free from your idol that's strangulating you and just, just, just squeezing the life out of you. But instead, the rich man chose that master. He chose the master of money. And you know what? He died in his sin. He died in his bondage. And as far as we know, he is in hell today. So let me challenge us. Can I please listen to this challenge? It can be perhaps the most freeing thing that will ever happen to you. I want to first ask this question. How many here would say that they're born again? You know, isn't this a beautiful cross, by the way? You know, I, I, I recognize that. I didn't point that out. You know, this was uh, Ron Jordan. This, this thing's fabulous. Got, you, you should really come up here and look at it. But what I'm asking by being born again, do you recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? I mean, have you come to the point where the Holy Spirit all of a sudden reveals to you, you go, oh my goodness, I am separated from God. I mean, I am totally separated from the living God because of my sin. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, now I get why Jesus, very God in the flesh, died on the cross. He was spilling his blood for me. He was taking my place in hell. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you really understood that and you placed your faith and trust in this. How many would, just, let's just give a show up. How many would, just raise them high, be proud, raise them high. The vast majority of us would. Okay, now I'm setting you up. Now, if that's true, Skip, can you put up what the Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians? He says this, this, this is for the believer now. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not, you do not, come on, come on, that was weak. You do not, for God bought you with a high price. He bought you with the blood of Christ. So you must honor God with your body. If you truly are born again, then you have a master You are a slave. While you're on planet Earth, you are a slave of Jesus Christ. He is your master. Yes, in heaven, he will be your friend, and you'll experience all of those other things. But like Paul said, you right now, if you are truly born again, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are his slave. He is your master. He is my master. You know what disturbs me so much? As a pastor, it's almost weekly. It's certainly monthly. I hear someone say to me, and it just gets to me, Jesus doesn't work. I tried him, but he doesn't work. That just gets to me. 
And then you have pastors who will give an altar call. You know what their altar call is? I could give an altar call right now. How many here would just like to receive Genie Jesus? He's going to forgive you of all your sins. He's going to make your life wonderful and all better. Anybody want Jesus? And they come running up. Just give Jesus a try. Taste and see that he is good. You know, it's almost like we're presenting Jesus as a can of Coke now. No, give him a try. Jesus said, you can't accept me that way. In fact, he says this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Jesus says this to the apostle Paul. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is What did I say? What what does it say? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is. And you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. Then you'll be delivered. You can only receive Jesus as Lord. There's no other way to receive him. And so here's the challenge. You know, most of us live with worry. I hear time and time, Pastor, is it a thing to worry Yes, would be the correct answer. Is it a sin to be anxious? Yes, would be the correct answer. You know why? You know, I, I, this, this really got to be this message. So, by, by the way, I've been already deeply convicted by it. You know, you know why the Lord said, Frank, you know why you worry about, you have worry and anxiety? He said, no, Lord. He said, because you haven't made me Lord of everything. So here's what I want you to do, Frank. You own nothing. I want you to take the church, Bethlehem Community Church. See, you think you're the pastor, and you think it's yours, and I want you to give it to me because it never was yours. You give it to me. I'm Lord, you're not. I want you to give me Susan. I'm her Lord, you're not. Your kids, now, are you watching this now? I want you to do this in your own life. Say, Lord, you know what? This house, it's not my house anymore. It's your house. I'm going to give it to you. Or maybe you're worried about your spouse. Lord, I'm going to, you know, it never was my, sorry, I got confused. I give you my spouse. I give you my kids. I give you my job. I give you my reputation. I give you my health, Lord. You are Lord. And you know what you're going to find out? He can do so much a better job of taking care of it than you can. No, I'm serious. And you know what? No, you're finally free because I'm not responsible anymore. So now if Susan messes up, I say, ha ha, Lord, you got to deal with that one. Your problem. No, it's a beautiful system. You got to try it. It's really, it's a beautiful system. See, he's going, he can deal with Susan so much better than I can. The world offers you a freedom that will end in your enslavement. And Jesus offers you an enslavement that will end in your freedom. Is he really your Lord? That's what I'm going to challenge you in this last song. If he's your Lord, make a declaration of that. Make a declaration that today, Jesus, you're my Lord. I give you, maybe you want to come up front. And you, you just want to say, Lord, I'm going to give you. I've been so long holding on to this, and that's why I've been worried and anxious and living in fear. Today you can be set free. Today you can be set free. Lord, I just pray for each and every person here. 
What a tragedy for that rich man who met Jesus. He walked away sad and he walked away living in his fear. And it destroyed him and ultimately led him to hell, separated from God for all eternity. I don't pray that for anyone here. I pray, Holy Spirit, I know you're present. That today as you're knocking on the door of many people's hearts, that they'll open up and say, Jesus, I'm opening up to you. I'm not only receiving the forgiveness of sin, but I'm receiving your lordship so that I can live victoriously now and be an example of what an incredible, free, and gracious God you truly are. I pray that now. I pray that we give Satan a tremendous black eye this morning, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.